0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back. We have such a great opportunity just to, man, hang out as a family. Don't you enjoy it? I mean, it's awesome. And just to reiterate what was said, I'm so thankful for all of you that are here, the faithful, those that might have been invited. Maybe this is your first time. We're just so glad that you're here. And I, and I hope that today will just be a blessing and an encouragement to you. Uh, we are in a short series talking about the theme that I believe the Lord would have for us to focus on for 2016 as a church. And it comes from one verse of Scripture. And that one verse of Scripture is Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10. And it's in your notes that I may know Him, Paul says, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. And so the first week that we began this discussion, we studied that passage of Scripture in context leading up to verse number 10. And we saw the Apostle Paul lay out some things. One of the things that was most emphasized in that chapter three of Philippians is the idea that all of our worldly possessions or pursuits or skills or ambitions or achievements are really worthless in light of eternity in comparison to the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus personally as our Lord and Savior. So we really talked a lot about just how important that is, is that we don't experience just a religion, but that we have a genuine, real, living, vibrant, daily relationship with a risen Savior. And if you don't understand what that means, I hope that by the end of this hour, you will understand and that you will want to enter into such a relationship because He died to offer that to you And it's always extended freely to you at any time that you're ready to receive that. And then last week, we spent some time with the second phrase in that verse, which talks about the power of His resurrection. And we talked about how Jesus Christ will show His power in us, the power of a resurrection, giving life to something that previously had no life. And in salvation, your spirit was dead and then came alive. The Bible calls that being born again. Of the Spirit. And that Jesus will show His power in your life shortly after that salvation, proving to you that He really is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the the God, the Son of God, who came to give His life for you and, and promise you eternal life. But not only will He show His power in you, He'll show His power through you as you continue to walk with Him. And the main way that we saw that power manifested through the believers is in our sharing that life-giving power with others. We call that witnessing or evangelism. And so the idea would be through you then, the power of God operates, the Holy Spirit gives you the strength and the power to go and to open your mouth and to help others who are spiritually dead be able to become spiritually alive. And that's the power of the resurrection now working through you into the life of others. And today we're going to walk into the third section, which is the fellowship of his sufferings because once you really begin to experience his power in your life and through your life you really begin to experience what the bible calls fellowship real true genuine fellowship with jesus christ now i want you to consider what does that word fellowship really mean Back in the day when I was serving in the country of Albania and they didn't have a Bible in their language and my wife and I and a few others began to work through the possibility of having to translate the Scripture, which was such a daunting task. One of the words that we really wrestled with is, because they didn't have a specific word in their language for fellowship, how would you give a synonym? What would be another word? How would you define this idea of fellowship? Because for us as believers, we typically only use the word in the context of churchy stuff. And so if you're kind of just out in the, in the work world or whatever, you probably don't use the word fellowship all that often. So if we just define what the word means, I have in your notes, fellowship really means communion. That's really what it means. Um, it could also be uh, translated or considered defined as uh, companionship or partnership, the literal word we chose in Albanian, was literally the same word for brotherhood. And so it's just that companionship, that that communion, in other words, having things in common. And that's really the idea of fellowship. We, We have something together. So I want you to ask yourself, and this is the next line in your notes, what do you have in common with Jesus Christ? What do you have in common with Jesus Christ? Well, I have eternal life. Well, he gave that to you. Uh, I have the Holy Spirit. Well, he, he gave that to you too. Well, I guess in a sense he gave us everything that we have that's any good. But, but as you just look in the mirror, as you just analyze your own life, I want you to ask yourself as we walk through this study today, what is it in my life that would look something like Jesus' life? Because that's really what will determine our fellowship with him. Last week when we studied the idea of the power of his resurrection, we found out that when God's power starts to operate in and through us, we saw that we immediately become dangerous to the enemy and that he is fully aware of it and he doesn't like it and he will begin to resist you and you'll have to persevere. If you remember, we looked at the narrative through the beginning of the book of Matthew and in Matthew chapter 3, that was Jesus' baptism. And the beginning of his earthly ministry and the voice from heaven, you know, this is my beloved son and who I am well pleased, in chapter 4, immediately after that glorious moment, he's driven out in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days, he's tempted by the devil. And what I want you to understand today with that context in mind is that in order for you to bear fruit in your life, just like Jesus had to go through this temptation And suffering at some level, so you also will have to go through some level of suffering or sacrifice. Now, this isn't our favorite feel-good message. This isn't the thing that we're necessarily going to say, boy, am I glad I showed up today. But the truth of the matter is is that that we have this amazing opportunity to have genuine, personal, intimate fellowship with the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the fact is, is that the more and more you experience that, well, it will also include sacrifice. It will also include, well, why? Because what was Jesus's earthly life all about? It was all about suffering and sacrifice so that he could make available to us the plan of salvation. Let's further define fellowship. First John chapter one would be the place we'd want to go. We're going to start in verse number three. So the Apostle John writes, he says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Which, by the way, is the natural byproduct of having fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the body of Christ. It's full fulfillment of joy. Verse five, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So fellowship with Jesus Christ is based on the fact that you walk in the light as he is in the light. Last week we talked about how we don't want to give place to the devil and that the devil operates in the latitude between your life and the Word of God. So if your life is right on line with the Word of God, you don't give any place for the devil to operate. If your life is right on line with the Word of God, then you will have the closest possible fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So if we walk in the light, that's personal holiness. If we choose to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, while we're walking with the Lord, there's no question about it. In fact, that would be a good definition of godliness. Continuing step by step to walk in holiness, one after another after another, developing this lifestyle of virtue. This is godliness. It's being like God. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, 2 Timothy 3 gives us the other side of the coin, the equivalent truth from the Apostle Paul in verse number 12. It says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, if you're going to truly walk in the light, you have to understand there is an enemy. If you're truly going to walk with the Lord, you become dangerous to the enemy, which is a desirable thing, by the way. And if that's going to happen in your life, you have to be prepared for, you have to expect the fact that things aren't always just going to be, you know, bubble gum and cotton candy. I mean, sometimes it's going to be tough because there's somebody out there spiritually that's going to make sure that it's going to be that way. And the Lord allows it because... At the end of the day, he desperately wants fellowship with you. And he wants you to understand and to experience some level of what he understands and experiences. Then you have fellowship with him. And it's a beautiful thing. Peter refers to it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 21: For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That you should follow in his steps. So, Christ's suffering for us is not just the greatest gift ever, it's an example for our lives after we receive the greatest gifts that he's ever given. So, this becomes the theme of what Peter writes about, specifically in 1 Peter, which is going to be the place that we're really going to study today. So, if you haven't, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're actually going to cover the entire chapter today in overview but what we see if we study the the book of first peter is that really a lot of people say that the theme of the book of first peter is suffering because the subject pops up over and over again and as i studied it and taught it many years ago i noticed that there's also an equivalent theme and the other parallel theme with suffering in the book of first peter is glory and that's very interesting because for every time some form of the word suffer shows up There is one-for-one correlation with the time that the word glory shows up, which must mean that there's a correlation between the two principles, that one leads to the other. And that's really what we see when we study 1 Peter. There's no question that we want to glorify God in our lives. It's our highest calling. It's the purpose for which we should live. But you've got to understand that the road to glory is through suffering. Every time, no exceptions, no shortcuts. I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that's what the Lord tells us. So in First Peter 4, we're gonna see how that we can have fellowship with Jesus Christ and glorify God. And we're gonna do that starting in the first five verses. So please follow along, I'm gonna read the first five verses. First Peter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind for he that hath suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. So in this first section of scripture, we're going to see our first point in our notes, and that is to equip yourselves, to equip yourselves. So these five verses lay out for us, it's interesting because when you look at these verses, verse number one has the one and only imperative verb. That just means it's the verb that is given in a command form. And the only verb that is given, hey, be sure to do this in verse number one of those five verses is the verb arm, arm yourselves, arm yourselves. That means that you need to prepare yourselves. You need to equip yourselves, in other words. Think about it. I mean, we as Americans, I mean, we are all about spending whatever it costs, whatever's necessary to make sure that we have the proper equipment for whatever it is we enjoy doing. So whether that's sporting equipment, whether it's technology, whether it's footwear, clothing, whatever it might be, we don't have a problem sacrificing to spend to have the right equipment. Well, the Lord tells us here that we are to equip ourselves or we are to arm ourselves with something because the times are going to get tough. And the suffering is going to come. So when the times get tough, what is it that we're supposed to arm ourselves with? Are we supposed to stockpile weapons? Are we supposed to store up in a bunker MREs? <laughs> I mean, what exactly? Are, I mean, people are funny these days. They look at life in a very carnal, secular, temporal mindset when God wants us to have a much more eternal mindset. He says that we're to arm ourselves in the text with the same mind. Literally, the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ in suffering for others. We are to arm ourselves mentally. So, let me ask you this. Do you really enjoy walking with Jesus in fellowship? This is a very serious question I want you to consider. Do you really enjoy it? Or let me ask you this. Maybe you're not sure you've experienced it. Would you like to enjoy having intimate personal fellowship walking with Jesus Christ I think most of us would say yes absolutely well if so well then there's going to be hard times and if you can expect to have hard times because God says you will and if you want to enjoy walking with Jesus then you have to equip yourselves with the mind of Christ because if you don't you're setting yourself up for failure and so there's a couple of aspects of this that you need to know about. And so in your notes I put this. The first one is, letter A, the gap is nine inches. In other words, what's that all about? Well, what I'm doing is I'm defining for you the size of the battlefield that you are entering into. And nine inches is just about the distance between your ears. Just about right there. And so the gap, the, the, the space, the battlefield where it all takes place, it's not all out here. It's not in your circumstances, it's not in your relationships, it's not in politics, it's not in any of those things. It's right here. It's about 9 inches wide. And you need to understand that because it always has to do with your mind. That's always where the warfare is. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5 tell us that, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What exactly are those? Well, casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity, notice every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, let me just tell you, that's a high standard. That's a tough one. Oh, by the way, let me just take the pressure off. You can't do it. The Lord has to do it through you. So, no pressure. Just let Him do that. But the battlefield is right here, and what He's looking for is is that you will set your mind, that you will have that same mind that Christ had to be able to go through and endure the warfare that's coming your way. If you can win this battle right here in your mind then I promise you, none of the other things that are going on around you, and by the way, I understand they can be very real. They don't really matter that much anymore because you got your mind on right. You know how it works. You know you've experienced it. I've experienced it. When things are going tough and when you're down and when you're carnal and when your life is bad and when things aren't tracking, at the end of the day, if you'll just be honest, I think you'll agree, it's never really about that person that did me wrong. It's about how I dealt with it. It's about how I deal with it. Forgiveness is way more about me than it is about the other person. It's setting setting me free when I forgive you, right? And so that's a really important issue. And the second thing, letter B, is about the goal. The goal is your time. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, right? In verse number 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time. In the flesh, to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. You know, your time is very precious. No matter how much money you have, no matter what your social status or intellectual prowess is, you have exactly the same amount of time that I do and anybody else does. There's only so much time every day, and every day it's all used up, and the next day it starts all over again. That's why the most wealthy people in the world. Consider their most precious commodity, their time, even more than their money. Because there's so many things that they can invest money in, but the time is just gone. And they have to invest their time wisely. Never before in the history of man have we had more time-saving conveniences available to us, wouldn't you say? I mean, everything's instant. And so you have microwave ovens and drive through restaurants and to-go cups And, you know, everything is in a hurry. Everything is quick. Everything is instant. We have all the technology. We have all the different cool gadgets that can help save us time. And yet, man has never been more busy. I mean, really, honestly. Do you really have more time available to you than you used to? I think most all of us would say no. Absolutely not. Why? Because all these cool gadgets and things that are made available to us are so much fun. We heap and heap upon ourselves more and more of them and play with them all day that our time is even less available, isn't it? It's never about the gadget. It's never about the circumstance. It's only about your mind. That's what it's always about. And interestingly, the Holy Spirit through Peter says, you got to set your mind like Christ And it has to do with your schedule. It has to do with your time. This is a a real practical message. Because we have a problem. Too much of our time, like it says in verse 2, is spent to the lusts of men. We spend too much of our time doing that. We use the word amusement. Amusement. And if we break down that word into its component parts linguistically, to muse on something means to think about it. The prefix a means without. If you are amoral, you are without morals. The people who believe in the Bible system of Jesus's, Jesus' coming, uh, of ah millennialism the millennial reign being the thousand year reign the ah millennialists think there is no literal thousand year reign it's all just spiritual so ah muse is without thinking unplug your brain turn on the tube go go relax and don't think about anything anymore okay well you know Everybody enjoys some recreational activities, and they are not sin, of course, in of themselves, but they are time-consuming, are they not? And sometimes they don't allow us a lot of time to just serve the Lord. So why do we do them? Well, well, duh, we like them. (laughs) I mean, we do them because they're fun. We do them because we receive enjoyment from them. We do them because I want to fill in the blank, whatever that blank is. So now it's all about kind of what I want and what I like and what I enjoy. And again, that doesn't necessarily have to be sin, but it is in the category of the lusts or the desires of men, would you not say? Very interesting. So, you know, listen, nobody's saying cash in all your, you know, favorite recreational activities because, look, as a preacher once said, I thought it was really good everybody's got to unstring the bow every once in a while and just relax. I mean, you got to kind of have some time off, but, but do it in moderation. I mean, have some temperance in your life. I mean, all things within reason, right? Don't go overboard in anything. That's really what the Lord's looking for, because rare is the man who will refuse these personal pleasures for the sake of ministry. Now, I can tell you a story about my life, and so I'm I was saved at just for my twenty-second birthday, and was growing in the Lord, and plugged into a church in Alabama where I was, and began to really learn the Bible, and was plugged into their system of discipleship and training, like we have here. And eventually, the pastor gave me the responsibility to lead the middle school class, and I really enjoyed doing that. So when I was how old are you, Trent? 24. twenty-four. I was twenty-seven. Okay, so Trenton leads the middle school class. He's twenty-four. I was twenty-seven and uh, man, we had, I I still worked full-time as an engineer, and so, you know, like Trenton works full-time, and everybody, okay, so I had the full range of youth activities. Uh, I taught every Sunday morning, like a Sunday school class. We had a weekly outreach. I did personal discipleship. We had bi-weekly activities for the kids. I mean, we had a lot going on. Well, at the same time, I'm a bachelor, and I enjoyed my recreational activities, and I played in the Golf League for the business that I worked for, I had a league for people who like to play golf. I did that. I played on the church softball team. that was fun in the summers. I played that and and I also played in the city organized tennis league. I happen to like that. I know by looking at me you wouldn 't think I know how to do that stuff. and I mean, I was involved in all of those leagues, and all of those leagues require that you show up a time or two every week, and of course, i 'm doing more and more with the kids in ministry and Man, I'm just telling you, I was feeling the pressure. I mean, I was really feeling the pressure. How can I get all this stuff done? Something's got to go. And I promise every one of you in here have your own version of a story like that. How can I get all of these things done? I can't. Something has to go. The real question is, what goes? The answer to that question determines the real answer to the first question I asked you, do you really enjoy fellowship with the Lord? You see, because when it comes down to really making real life boots on the ground decisions, well, you know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Well, the question I would ask you then is, what would you be willing to give up? What would you be willing to give up? That's what you need to consider So back to 1 Peter, verse number 3, the Lord showed me verse number 3. It says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. And I realize that it goes into a list of sinful behaviors, but it just dawned on me at that time that, look, Jeff, 22 years of your life are enough to have done all the dumb things that you've done. And I was so into doing the dumb things that, I mean, I was, I, I ramped up the curve fast on, I mean, I was good at it. And it just dawned on me, look, enough of that stuff, enough. You go to Ephesians 5 and verse 16 where it talks about redeeming the time. And I realized, man, at 22, now 27, I was so far behind the curve of so many of you who have been raised up in church and had the opportunities to learn and to grow all your lives. Not all of you, but many of you. And I was behind the curve, and I realized that. And so, systematically, one by one, I gave up those recreational activities. And I don't remember which was first and second and third, but I dropped one and then checked it out for a while, and I was still too busy, and I dropped another And I checked it out, and it was still too busy, and I dropped the third one. And I'm not saying everybody has to do what I did. I'm just telling you what I did because then eventually God used it, God honored it, and God eventually sent me as a missionary to a country, and I am not joking, literally had no recreational opportunities. There was nowhere to go to do any of that stuff. I mean, the word golf in the Albanian language means a turtleneck sweater. I mean, that's not fun. Who wants to do that? They had tennis courts, but after communism fell and the revolution, everybody stole everything that was, I mean, so all the nets were stolen. So you just had a concrete slab with no net. You can't play on that, it's no fun. I mean, there was nothing to do, which would freak a lot of y'all out if you had to go to a place like that. But for me, because I had already made those adjustments, I kind of didn't care. And it was awesome. It was just neat. So, if you're going to have this kind of a mindset, you don't need to do what I did. You just need to consider what is the next step for you? What is the one thing you need to consider? And I'm just going to tell you, the only way you're going to do it is to arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Because if you don't, you'll never do it. You'll never make any changes. You need to prepare to begin to do without some things that you enjoy. You want to put that in the category of suffering or just sacrifice? It's still a good step. Making those kinds of choices, it goes against your culture. It goes against your personal will. It goes against the habits that you've developed in your life. And you can only do that when you replace your mindset with Christ's mindset. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16 tells us that we have the mind of Christ and the context of 1 Corinthians 2 is the word of God. So you replace the way you think with the way God thinks. And he describes how he thinks in his word. And it's just that important. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse number 5, says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Tell us a little bit about that mind. Okay, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Jesus Christ understood very clearly who he was. He had all the rights and privileges of deity. Verse 7, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Nobody made him do that. He did it himself. He did it willingly. Let this mind be in you. And when you do that, interestingly enough, Peter says, you can cease from sin. Verse number one. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Are you promoting sinless perfection for the believers? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. That's not what I'm saying. Well, what exactly are you trying to say? Well, I'm saying that when you begin to set aside distractions, the sins that creep in, the temptations that creep in through those distractions no longer creep in. You now have God's mind. You have his desire. You have his will. You live for another world, not this one and not yourself. You adopt a mindset toward new things. And so if you look down in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, you find that in verse 6, what are some of the new things? Well, witnessing to other people. Verse number 7, prayer. Verse number 8, love or charity. Verse number 9, hospitality. Verse number 11, quoting the Scriptures, glorifying God. You see, once you equip yourself with the mind of Christ concerning the sacrifice of your personal time, by the way, what exactly is that anyway? What exactly is your personal time? You who are bought with a price and you are not your own. Remember that part? I'm not sure we have personal time. I'm not sure that we have the right to vote when we're making decisions. We surrendered all lordship to Christ if you truly are saved, which means he's the boss. And we say, yes, sir. Anyway, this personal time thing has to get its proper place. Well, then let's go to our next point. You're in a place where you can exalt your Savior. Exalt your Savior. Let's keep reading starting in verse 12. "Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. For if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, on their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evil doer, as a busybody in other man's matters, men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So, verse twelve: Don't be surprised when you make up your mind that you're going to live for God if things start going wrong, because there will be opposition. So just expect it. It's going to be fiery, but it's not strange. It's not unusual. It's common. Again, in this section of the Scriptures, there's only one imperative verb. It's in verse 13, and it is rejoice. You are told to rejoice. Verses 13 and 14 have the words rejoice, glad, exceeding joy, happy. They also have the words glory, spirit of glory, glorified, glorify. See how they go together? And Peter knows what he's talking about because he lived it. If you go back to Acts chapter 5, so you have the apostles, and Peter's among them, and they are preaching a lot, and people are getting healed a lot, and people are getting saved like crazy, and the authority says, stop it, and they put them in prison, and God sends an angel, and they break them out of prison, and they go back to preaching, and the authorities are frustrated, and they're like, man, what are we going to do with these guys, and verses 40 to 42, And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing, there it is, why? That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. I'd say Peter knows what he's talking about. I say when Peter refers to arming yourself with the mind of Christ and being prepared for the difficulty and rejoicing in the midst of it, he's just writing from experience. Here's how it works. The more you suffer for righteousness' sake now, the more you'll rejoice at his return. Amen? It's not always easy to rejoice right now unless you have his mindset because without his mindset, you're not rejoicing. it's not happening but the more you willingly step up and 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 live his life in the flesh here and now man aren't you excited about him coming back and putting an end to that and him getting all the glory aren't you excited about that well that's what verse 13 says but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed that's his coming right you may be glad also with exceeding joy So the question again is, do you really enjoy having personal, intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ on a daily basis? Because if you truly do, that means that you are participating in His life, which includes sacrifice, which is a joy because it's worth it. Let me ask you a different way. If you happen to have a loved one who's sick and suffering in a hospital, and that happens to all of us at some point, if you sacrifice your schedule and time, of course you do, and you spend as much time as you possibly can at their bedside and you suffer together with them, it draws you closer, does it not? It it increases the bond. You do it willingly. Of course you do it willingly because you love them and because you know it makes them feel just a little bit better. Even if they're the type that say, no, go home, I'm okay. No, it makes them feel better if you're by their side. You care enough to do it. Well, with that mindset, let me just ask you this. How do you think Jesus thinks or feels When we willingly deny ourselves, suffer unjustly in His name just for the sake of being closer to Him. Just for the sake that we love Him and we care about Him and we want to walk with Him and we want to represent Him and we want to know Him better and we want Him to know us better and we lay it all down. Cannot you see that that just makes him happy? Can't you see that he is pleased with you when you would do such a thing? So Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we saw Christ's willing humility suffering for us. Pick it up in verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus Christ suffered and was glorified. Likewise, when we suffer for Him, we glorify Him, and will one day be glorified all the more. We walk with Him. Verse 14 of 1 Peter If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So living this life, walking with Christ, which includes sacrifice and persecution, just connects you all the more to him, which is good for you and it's good for him. So why would we not want to do that all the more? If you cannot make those decisions without His mind. You can't make those decisions unless the Word of God, the mind of Christ, works through your mind and you then see the world the way He sees the world. The third point, verses 17 to 19. And trust your souls. I'm starting to read in verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Okay, so in this section, again, one and only one imperative verb, commit. Commit the keeping of their souls. Verses 17 and 18 have a list of some rhetorical questions. They're questions that don't need any answers. The answers are obvious. The issue is final judgment, right? The time has come. Judgment begins at the house of God. Okay, if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Well, everybody knows what their end will be. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Everybody knows where they're going to appear on the wrong side. And so it has to do with final judgment. So if we have the mind of Christ, and if we have the panorama, and if we understand the big picture, and we understand the end game, and how dramatically serious it is, you know what, you're really not all that worried that much anymore about your schedule, are you? You're not really worried that much about your suffering, are you? Paul said in Romans 8, 18, right? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that'll be revealed in us, right? So think about it, when you cross the end of this physical life and you're in the presence of the Lord and you look back, are you really gonna be sad that you didn't ride your motorcycle more or you didn't ride your bicycle more or you didn't play golf more or whatever your favorite thing to do is? No, you're gonna be sad that you didn't invest in more people getting saved. That's what you're gonna be sorry, if anything. Back to your notes. Your willingness to suffer with Jesus now can spare many others from suffering in hell forever. Man, that's a life worth living. I mean, this life is it's like a vapor. It's like the grass of the field that dries up and withers away and is blown away. It's, done, it's gone. I mean, our pilgrimage here, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, is it's nothing compared to eternity. I mean, why would we live our lives consumed with this? The Apostle Paul, Romans 9 Verse 3 and into verse 4, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. That's a crazy statement, but basically Paul is saying, I'd do anything if my people would come to know Jesus and get eternal life, whatever that means to me. Accursed from Christ. Well, no, he could not be accursed from Christ. You can't lose your salvation, but the point is, what if I have to suffer in order for others to get eternal life? Would I be willing? Paul says, absolutely, I'd be willing. says it a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always burying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. So as we go through the difficulties, we say with our mind toward the Lord, walking hand in hand with our Savior, we say, Lord, I will do my part to walk with you in fellowship. And I know that it means that swimming upstream, everything's going to come and hit me in the face and things are not always going to be wonderful. But other people get it and people get saved and your power working in me causes me to open my mouth and witness to others and life comes out of things that were dead. And we will all live together in joy for eternity. And I'll willingly do that. I, I, I want to do that. You'll only do it if you have his mind. The question I want to ask you, and this is the big question, is it worth it to you? Is it worth it? I mean, count the cost, right? Let me just tell you something. I've been doing this a long time. I'm no expert, but I am an observer of the human condition. Every one of us does exactly what we want. You just do. Well, I don't want to pay taxes. Well, you want to pay taxes more than you want to go to jail, so you pay taxes because you want to. I mean, we all do. Nobody forces you, man, especially in the area of spiritual things, right? Nobody's beating your door down and making you write a tithe check. You know, they're not dragging you to church. Well, if you're old enough to drive on your own. Um... I mean, look, nobody's making you do anything. You do exactly what you want to do. So when this life is over and you stand before your Savior and God forbid the testimony is, what up, dude? You did nothing. Should God forbid that happen, you got nobody to blame but yourself. Nobody to blame but yourself. Because you, if you want to, you will. Verse 17. The time has come that judgment must begin in the house of God. The time is now. This whole my personal time and the scheduling thing, really. It's it's done. We're, we're at the jumping off point, y'all. I mean, we're at the end. The question is, are you gonna are you gonna decide today? I mean, I mean today. I mean, I mean now. I mean, before we get up and walk out. I mean, are you going to make that decision now? We're to commit the keeping of our souls, it says in verse 19. Let me just point out briefly. It doesn't say commit the keeping of our bodies. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say commit the keeping of our spirit. It doesn't say that. We are a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. And the body is made up of flesh, and the flesh is always evil and always draws you to do evil things. So all the dumb, stupid, sinful things that we do is done because the flesh got control of our life and we said, okay. The Spirit is holy. It used to be dead. The Holy Spirit now gave life to our spirit and dwells there. And the Holy Spirit 100% of the time constantly and forever draws you to do what is right and holy and perfect. And when you walk in the Spirit, you do the right things. It's the soul where the real trouble is. You commit the keeping of your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions because your soul is the decision maker in the middle. The flesh is always pulling you this way and the spirit is always pulling you this way. It's you right here that's making the decision. So what are you going to commit? Well, you're going to commit the keeping of your soul because that's the only place you got room for, for you know, to wiggle. <laughs> Please understand this: Jesus Christ desires fellowship with you. You got to know that. It, you are not missing out on fellowship with Jesus because he's too busy. You're not missing out on fellowship with Jesus because he's put you on a waiting list, and when he's done with the really good Christians, he'll get to you. That's not happening. So the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus speaking first person. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now this might make you feel good. Biblically defined, having supper is fellowship. We want to have fellowship, we're going to eat some food. Well, in the, in the culture of the time when Jesus lived, as it is today, by the way, sharing a meal with somebody is more than just food. It's sharing time. It's sharing your life. It's having conversation. It's getting to know one another more personally. So Jesus says, look, you guys are having church. The door is locked and he's on the outside. And he's like, any one of you, It's like there's only a handle on the inside. He's not going to force the door down. He doesn't force you to do anything. He wants you to want to. But anybody who says, I'll open the door. I'll let him in. He'll come in and have fellowship with you. He desperately wants. He's the one knocking. Hey! Hey! But it's up to you. Whether you want to open the door, right? You know where all that, again, we're going to keep going back. You know where all that begins? That nine inch gap. That's where it all begins. That's where it all ends. That's where it all takes place. It's in your mind. You have to change your mind about how you view life. In education, we call that your worldview. What is your worldview? Is it Christian? Is it biblical? Or is it human? Is it cultural? Because they frequently are not the same, right? Philippians 3 and verse 10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, we have this saying, time is money. Business people know that. As I started out, your time truly is the most precious commodity that you have. It is. Limited availability. Something is precious or rare or expensive because you can't find it. Diamonds are expensive and precious because they're not just laying on the asphalt. You've got to dig down and find them. They're hard to find. Regular rocks aren't precious. Your time is precious. There's only so much of it. So I want to give you an action step, and I would like for you to all consider making a budget of your time. Make a budget of your time. So many of you, maybe not as many as should, make a budget of your finances. Uh, We offer Dave Ramsey's class to help you do that, And and when you do that, what do you do when you make a budget of your finances? Well, the first thing you do is not change anything. You just write down, where is all of my money going right now? And if you just write it all down for a couple of months, you're like, wow, am I spending a lot of money on coffee? Or wow, am I spending a lot of money on whatever? Then you can begin to make changes, right? Then you begin to say, well, no wonder I'm I'm in the red. I need to spend less on that and I need to put a couple of dollars in the bank and invest in something that will pay a dividend. Well, you can do that with your time. Make a budget. Just keep a calendar of, yes, like every minute. What are you doing? How much of your time are you just sitting around, you know, picking your nose or whatever? I mean, write it down. (laughs) For some of us, it's more than others. And then look at it and say, how much of my time am I wasting? And how much of my time am I investing? And what would be the return on my investment? What changes, this is what I'd like for you to consider, what changes do you need to make to go from waste to investment? Because it's in your hands to do that in order to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. You know, We talk a lot about there's an urgency and we got to get the word out and people are going to hell and, and all of that is true. But there's an element of just saying, don't you just love the Lord enough to want to hang with him? I mean, isn't he just like the coolest guy ever? I mean, don't you just want to spend, I mean, isn't, isn't he better than any best friend you ever had? the friend that sticks closer than any brother. I mean, Jesus is real, y'all. He's alive, he's here, he's listening, he's knocking. Does that interest you? Well, if it does, then you'll make some changes. Let's pray together.